This is Paul Pesquisolido, and you are listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Fulham Focus podcast. My name's Matt Boisclair and the Whites are back in action this Saturday afternoon as we face Crystal Palace at Craven Cottage. Dust your wallets off again, folks, as it's time to line the pockets of the television companies again. We'll be looking ahead to the game very shortly. Plus, Danny joins me for a player in focus chat about Whites legend Breda Hangeland. But before we go any further, and this is the point in the show when I'd usually take the piss out of my co-host for something they've either said or done recently... This week, I have to hold my hands up for quite possibly doing the most stupid thing of all of us myself. Regular listeners may have noticed that very recently, the sound on my microphone's gone from sounding like I'm in an echoey room to sounding on par with everyone else. That's because despite getting through two microphones and over two years of being on this show, effectively, as far as the settings on my computer go, my microphone's never actually been plugged in. As I said to the lads this week when I realised, I may as well have been sat here all this time speaking into a banana. So please accept my profound apologies for the terrible sound all this time. I'm quite literally the biggest plonker of all the Fulham Focus team. Morgs and Ben are with me this week. I've no grounds to say anything stupid about either of you this week. I'm just going to sit here in the corner thinking about what I've done, or more, what I haven't done. <laughs> Such a prat. <laughs> you really are. So sorry, listeners, you are going to hear him clearly now, and it's still not pretty. Yeah, you're still going to hear the same old bollocks. It's just going to be in slightly higher quality. (laughs) Oh, surround sound bollocks. Lovely. (laughs) Good stuff. All right, let's go then. Fulham. Well, we're up against a man the record book state is our most successful manager of all time with accolades such as seventh place finish and a Europa League final amongst his incredible achievements whilst in charge at the Cottage. But current Crystal Palace manager Roy Hodgson, now at the age of 73, may have taken the Eagles as far as he can go. His side only scored 32 goals last season and became the first club never to score more than two in a game not to be relegated from the Premier League. Crystal Palace fans were beginning to think a change in the manager might be needed in the summer after a seven-game losing streak post-lockdown saw them finish 14th, but the board have kept faith at least for now. Morgs, talk to me about your affection for Roy, a man whose Palace side did the double over us when we were in the Premier League two years ago. I think unless you're a Liverpool fan, there is no way you can dislike Roy Hodgson. Um, obviously, un, you know, England, whatever. But the the way he turned our club around in basically no time at all was nothing short of incredible. He came in with us languishing at the bottom of the table. We're playing, well, crap football. I mean, if you are sort of Palace fans, maybe it's not the best football now, but he managed to get us playing a style of football that was enough to A, keep us promoted and B, advance the team when it looked like we were done for. And I think any manager who is able to do something that special in such a short space of time deserves plaudits before you even get to the Europa League uh, run. And I think when... When you then look at the fact he got us to finish seventh in the league the next year after being so awful the first half of the season before that, it's it's not I mean not miracles or anything like that, but what he must have done I can't even imagine what he was doing on the on the training pitch compared to what Sanchez was doing to make those players suddenly believe in themselves so much, and I think it's a mark of a man who can actually talk to footballers like this who you know a lot of them ride in their egos they sort of they are confidence players all that depends everyone's got a different character and he just got them to gel so well and we have had a lot of managers over the last few years and he is definitely up there in the you know the top one or two really isn't it when it comes to sort of player management by the sounds of it and i think he is just he is a special person and I think he will always go down in Fulham folklore as one of our most special managers as well. I was just about to say then, actually, to, to paraphrase Brian Clough 
I'm not the best manager of all time, but I'm in the top one. <laughs> Roy Hodgson's our best ever, isn't he? Apart from Mickey Adams, who's in my in my heart for for very different reasons to to Roy yeah, Hodgson. You look but... at all of them, like you know, Tigana obviously did what he did. Um, then obviously Slav and stuff like that. But this guy took us from relegation certainties to Europa League finalists in two years, and who does that? That's not that's not normal. Not to you mention know, our, our highest position ever in the Premier League. Well, that's well. the thing, you know, you know, relegation certainties to Europa League finalists with the highest ever league finish sandwiched yeah. in between. Not bad, I mean, is it? Not bad. It's not, not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could see why he got a big job after that. And I really it, it saddens me that it didn't work out. But obviously that Liverpool job at the time was a bit of a poison chalice, I think. And was, he, yeah. uh, you know, obviously going on and what he's done at Palace as well. All due respect, he's turned a team that should, you know, be more relegation candidates into a solid Premier League team. And as we've seen over the last couple of years, well, obviously three years, you need to build that solidity in order to sort of maintain your uh, Premier League status. And that's what we don't have. But he's come in. It's not good football that they play. And I'm sure we'll talk about this, but, you know, it's a very uh, get that one nil win kind of game. But it is it is business like football. It's not, you know, it's there to sort of make sure the clubs stay where they are. And uh, but he's done it well. Well, it was uh, it was De Boer that was there before, wasn't it? And um, I don't think Palace had scored. They hadn't got any points. He got mm. sacked. His only stint in in um, English football management. And then Roy came in and did what he does best and turns around the fortunes of a club who are struggling at the wrong end of the table and comfortably kept them up. And and he did it again at Palace. Ben, you're a little bit younger than Morgs and I. So we're, we're going back 10 years ago. So what would you have been then? Like 13, 14? What do you Five. remember about Roy at Fulham? <laughs> yeah. What oh, do you I remember about Roy at Fulham? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually one of the first seasons I remember, uh, the Great Escape season. Um, before that, I remember bits and bobs about Luis Boamorte. That's all I remember from before that. But um, You're so I young. Remember, <laughs> I, I remember being sat um, that Great Escape season um, and we were down. And then Roy Ocean came in 10 around, like Morgan said. And I remember being in Man City, at the, in the way end at Man City, when we were 2-0 down and came back to win it. And so the hope sort of came back then. And the way the players were playing there, you could see they were playing together. And I think that's what he does. He comes in, he gets results. It's not pretty. Um, they don't score a lot. They don't you know, come in and, and win you over the football. I think that's what went on from Liverpool. Because he came in, Liverpool want to win by four or five goals every game and play good football. And you're not going to get that from Hodgson. He's going to come in, do a result, do a job, get a 1-0, 2-0 result and go home. Um, I mean, last season, not scoring more than two in a game with Ayu and Zahar up top, it's, it kind of sums it up, if, if not, nothing else. Yeah, but he had Ben Teke as well, didn't he? So I mean, that's always going to sort of knock well, you down yeah, the goal. Yeah. Oh, don't, so, don't start slacking players off. You know what will happen <laughs> if you yeah, do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If he's injured, then I'll slag them off. That's fine. Yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. I, I use got coronavirus, so we we wish him all the best and hope he gets well soon. But slag him off all you want because he, he won't be scoring. He won't be scoring. <laughs> Um, yeah. Ben, I'm, I'm I mean, curious yeah. because Morgan and I are a little bit older and we've seen um, a few more managers and, and good times and I guess you have because of um, the era in which we grew up in. But who would you? who's your favourite Fulham manager from what you've seen? Um, probably Slav, to be yeah. fair. Okay. For me, because, um, yeah, like I said, the earliest I can remember, I remember Chris Coleman vaguely, but yeah. I don't really remember what the football was like. Um, hmm. um, so, I mean, Laurie Sanchez, uh, that's about Ugh. the earliest I remember. Oh, God. So... Well, sorry, sorry, mate. So, when I ask the question, "Who's your favourite manager of all time?" Laurie Sanchez is not part of that answer. <laughs> yeah. Was that your first in, memory? In, that's like your that's like your first memory being like oh. seeing your parents shagging. I mean, that's like. <laughs> what do you mean your What do you mean your first memory of that? <laughs> that being your first memory is like you know when you always ask kids, like, oh, your people was, oh, what was your first memory? Uh, yeah. Oh, Laurie no, Sanchez. No wonder in, uh, they packed you off to boarding school, mate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, Palace won their opening two games this season. Firstly, a home victory over Southampton and then an impressive 3-1 win at Old Trafford. 
both games in which Wilfred Sahar was instrumental for them, scoring three goals in those two games. Since then, they've had a couple of defeats and a draw. But Ben, how much of a danger will Zahar be against us on Saturday? Well, I think Zahar is the best player in the bottom half of the Premier League. If you look at the teams around there, he's he should be playing for a better team than Palace. No offence to Palace, um, but he should be playing for a team that's sort of top seven, top eight, something like an Everton or a Wolves. I'm amazed he hasn't gone yet. But yeah, he is instrumental to the attack. Everything goes through him quite a lot of the time down that wing. Um, he's fast on the counter-attack and he's I think when we played Palace, when we came up two seasons ago, that home game, the one thing he made me realise was that we don't have a player like that. A player who can, he's got that speed, he can get forward and he can bomb in and, and score goals. And we don't really have that. And um, well, we, we do now through Luckman and um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek. That's his name, I forgot his name for a second there. Um, but, uh, you know, we didn't have that two years ago with Andre Scherler was at the end of his career. And I, I, I do think he's going to, you know, with Ayo out as well, he's going to be the main danger man going forward. Is we have to keep a good eye on him. Yeah, and I think look, you look at Zahar, and he does have that kind of the aura of a player who should definitely be playing higher up the up the leagues. And obviously, he had a stint with United um, back in whatever it was. You know, I guess it must have been what seven years ago, eight years ago. Now it was under Moyes, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it's longer than you think. Yeah, but he's he's not young anymore. I mean, I think. There, there were rumours of him leaving to go to, I think, maybe Everton or Arsenal or something like that in the, over the summer. But I don't know if he's got the right attitude for a lot of teams. And he is very well suited to Palace because he knows the club. The fans love him. His, they, you know, it massages his ego enough, I think. And I'm not sort of you know, taking away from the fact how talented he is, but he does, he does blow hot and cold. And I think, you know, maybe that's why he didn't make it at United because obviously it was a big, you know, they don't take, uh, you know, they don't suffer fools up there. And when he was playing with that particular ego without justifying it, it didn't work out for him. So coming back to Palace, you know, worked very well. And I think if he were to leave, would you see the same player? Maybe not. I don't know. Um, But he will cause us problems because he is a confidence player and he knows that our defence has not been good. And I think you might see him trying a few tricks. Uh, you know, this may end up seeing him put into the stands at some point, um, but he is, uh, you know, he's a player that will cause us problems. And obviously, you know, when we played them last time at the cottage, he did score. And I think we've got to be very wary that he will do that again. Well, we've spoken about defence there. Let's talk about the Fulham attack. Uh, Alexander Mitrovic. Had an afternoon to forget at Bramall Lane last Sunday. But he'll have a point to prove now, don't you think? He'll be fired up for this one, won't he, Ben? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it can't get much worse for him, can it? You know, missing a penalty, <laughs> giving away a penalty. It, it, it was an all-round terrible afternoon. He just couldn't seem to get started. Um, and my, my dad said when we were watching the game, when balls get fired into him, normally he holds them up. He can you know, take one touch, bring it down. And he just didn't seem to be able to do it. He just didn't seem to be able to get started at all. And he just seemed a bit off the pace. And someone said he played three games for Serbia, was it, in the week before? Yeah, something like that. He'd, uh, he'd definitely be on an international tour. Like, yeah, which that doesn't help. Um, everything that's going on as well. I think, you know, was it the best time to do that? But it's going to be a physical he's, battle. He's still, got in the, he's still got in those positions, though, where he'd normally get two score. It's just he was he was misfiring, really, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, and is that because he's a bit tired or is it just because it's a bad day at the office? Um, I, th- I think you know. You look at as I'm talking about Zaha. You know, he is a he is a bit of a confidence player, like all strikers are. Really, I mean, you miss one, and then you are slightly sort of you're aware. Rather than doing something instinctively, you are trying to do something when you think about it. And I think there is a few things there where he would have just you know put the ball in the back of the net if he'd been on a good day, but he probably was concerned that he would miss, so he thought about it for a split second. Um, you could tell when he took the penalty. That was, he changed his mind at the last second. And obviously maybe it had been because um, Ramsdale had dived already and he was going to go that way. Or maybe he just decided to try and be a bit clever. But either way, as I said, nothing was working out that day. And it was just, I think you won't see too many games like that for him. 
Uh, he might have you know a bad game, but he won't have a bad game where he misses that many chances in one go. And hopefully he can rectify it because he's going to be he's going to be fired up. You know, if he's any kind of footballer that you know, and we know that he is, he will want to make up for those mistakes. Well, everyone's entitled to have a bad day at the office. And as Scott Parker said in his post-match interview at Bramall Lane on Sunday, if anyone's earned the right to to have a bad day, then it's Mitrovic because he's bailed us out of so many situations, whether, you know, it was with his goals in the Premier League the last time around or either promotion season when when he um, when he when his goals basically got us promoted both times um, by all intents and purposes. So, yeah, I, I, I've... I've, I'm going to stick my neck out here. We'll do a prediction later on, but I think he'll score and I think he might get more than one as well this weekend. Um, I think he'll be properly fired up to to right that wrong from last weekend. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm wondering at the moment because I made the mistake of making my fancy uh, team captain last week, thinking that he might sort of pop up <laughs> with, a, with a goal or something. And uh, despite the fact you get double points for being a captain, he got zero points. Um, <laughs> so I don't know whether to do the decent thing and take him off the captaincy in order to sort of like release the shackles uh, of being my captain. But uh, I think I might just keep it there just in case he does uh, you know, I want come to good. I see triple captain this week, Morgan. He'll get sent off after scoring two own goals if I do that. <laughs> three, well, three times zero is still zero, isn't it? No, <laughs> he's, 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 he's going to bang him in this week. I want to I want to ask you both really quickly about the um, the squad that's been submitted to the Premier League. This well, it's it's up until the January transfer window, isn't it? So we've seen no place in the squad for Jean-Michel Serry, which I guess we kind of saw coming. Same with Kevin McDonald and Stefan Johansson, although I do feel sorry for the pair of those two that we couldn't find them another club um, to go to if they weren't going to be considered. But the real surprise was Josh Onoma, wasn't it? The, the fact that he's not included in the squad. Um, maybe he's injured, maybe he's not. Don't really know what's going on, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. And I'll come to you first, Ben. Your thoughts on the, the squad of 25 that we submitted. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's a couple of surprises in there. Um, in fact, we've got six and a half, is it, in that squad? Um, is it six? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's eleven defenders in total, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it just seems like quantity over quality at this point. Um, it's kind of what we have, in, though, isn't it? <laughs> eleven defenders on the pitch. What's the worst that can happen? Um, but I'm surprised Onuma's not in it. But if he's got a, a an injury for a couple of months and. Scott Parker's thinking he's not quite ready yet, regardless. It might be worth just waiting until January because you can knock him back in, in January into the squad. Um, Seri, like you said, no surprise, but you know, we should get him off the book. He's on 65k a week or whatever. He's a bit, a bit of a waste. Um, could be better spent elsewhere. Uh, Tony Khan can get some dodgy foreign signing in. Yeah, waste all that on. Someone gets injured <laughs> in the first training session like Anderson. Um, but yeah, the, the others were fairly standard, weren't they? Yeah. The, uh, Came out, Johansson. Oh, it's it's sad though, isn't it? It is that end of an era, and totally understand why Kmac is not in it. You know, he's not going to get a game. He's too he's too slow for the Premier League. Um, you know, the last last season he was too slow for the Championship, and it's a shame because he was such a great player in that year that we went up in 2018 and the season before. And it just you know, obviously post Vegas never quite came good, and he. He just, you know, he's he should be at the club as a coach, but he's only 31. So he's still, in theory, got, uh, you know, a bit of a playing career left in him. And I guess he's got to decide for himself whether he's still up to playing uh, in whatever league maybe, you know, get chance in. Um, he might go to MLS. He might go to Scotland or something like that. But I think he, uh, you know, I'd like to see him stay there or at least come back because he's such a motivator. Whereas Steph Joe, I mean, that's a... That's a, you know, it's interesting that he didn't get in. Just, he's a good player and he won't start every week. He does, he could come on and do something for us. But I guess we have such an abundance of midfielders again now that, you know, there was just no place. Uh, and I do hope that he gets a move because at the end of the day, he's, you know, Norway's, well, he's Norway captain, isn't he, a lot of the time. And so I think he deserves a, you know, a does deserves an opportunity to go and play football. And um, Jean-Michel Serry, I, I just couldn't care less. I kind of feel a little bit disappointed in the club in the way that they've treated particularly Stefan Johansson. Last time we were in the Premier League, he didn't really get a shout. 
And then he was shipped out on loan to West Brom. Then we brought him back in and he was almost a bit part player last season as well in the championship, wasn't he? We've, we've kind of hung on to him. And then this year, he's he's not going to get a game until at least January when he when he might find a new club. It's just, it's a bit of a shame for somebody who's been a great servant to the club over the years. What I think you might find is that we release both of them because mm. obviously clubs can still sign uh, free transfers. And I think it would be the right thing to, you know, if they find a club to say, we'll release you from your contract, don't release them without paying them, but release, you know, give them the opportunity to play somewhere before, you know, don't make them take six months off. It's or however many months we've got till Christmas, January. Um, they deserve the chance to go and play. And um, I think, you know, there are, there are opportunities still out there. And I think there are some windows that are still open, but I'm not 100% on that. Good stuff. All right, lads. Well, Let's go across now to a chat that I had with Danny about ex-Fulham captain and Fulham royalty, if you like, Breda Hangeland. Fulham. Right, well, it's not quite been the start to the season we were hoping for, but I'm here with Danny to talk about some great times of days gone by. This week, it's Fulham royalty as we look back over Breda Hangeland's time at the club. How's things, Danny? Hello, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. All set for this? Yeah, looking forward to this one. Absolute legend, Breda, isn't he? So, yeah, really good. Let's go for it. Well, he was born in Houston, Texas. The six foot six Norwegian central defender Breda Hangeland signed for Fulham in January 2008 from Copenhagen, reuniting with Roy Hodgson, for whom he played at Viking in Norway. Roy Hodgson, of course, had recently replaced the sacked Laurie Sanchez after a disastrous start to his only opportunity in Premier League management to date. It was a time of transition, but something had to happen quickly if we were to escape relegation. Had you ever even heard of Hangelon when he signed? Because I know I hadn't. No, I hadn't. And if I'm being honest with you, I didn't really care to find out anything about him. I was still coming to terms with the fact that Roy Hodgson had been appointed to be our saviour. I was very underwhelmed by Hodgson's appointment at the time. And he came in at the back end of December. And obviously, these players were signed in January. So I didn't really care for for the players he was bringing in, I, I thought we were doomed. And it wasn't until the February that we got our first win. So I guess my opinion of Hangeland and all those signings he made just had a knock-on effect from my view of Hodgson's appointment, sadly. We had a tendency to go for random players from all over the world, low-profile, low-budget signings that hopefully would turn out to be a, a bit of a bargain, but most likely would just be a waste of time. And I kind of felt Hangelum was going to be one of those gambles. Uh, and, and how wrong was I? Well, Roy Hodgson's stock in this country wasn't particularly high. He'd, he'd been with Blackburn a long time ago, hadn't he? And then he just kind of knocked around managing some international teams and um, teams outside of England. Although he, he did manage into Milan. But just it was quite a depressing time to be a Fulham fan in a way because Chris Coleman had taken the club as far as he could go and never really got to spend much money, if we're honest. Then Laurie Sanchez came in, billed himself as the saviour for getting that one lucky win against Liverpool, which kept us up the previous season, but was then given a bit of money to spend. You know, he signed Stephen Davis, and I think Diamante Cameras cost about six million quid. It didn't work out for Sanchez, but Roy Hodgson came in, and like you say, it was quite underwhelming, and we thought, is this guy really going to get us out of this? When was the last time he managed in the Premier League? And yeah, bringing in players from Scandinavia, Leon Andreasen was another one, Hangeland, you just thought, never heard of these players. If it works, then great, but chances are it's not going to. But those signings, along with the return of the likes of Jimmy Bullard and Brian McBride from long-term injuries, had a big bearing on our latter season form, which resulted in that last-day survival win at Fratton Park Portsmouth. I doubt it would have happened without the signing of the big man, Breda Hangeland, though, would it? He transformed us from looking terrible at the back to, to good and then eventually solid pretty quickly. Well, I remember his debut against Bolton away and we drew nil-nil and we could have won that game. But straight away, you could see there was more solidity at the back. There was um, a foundation that made us hard to beat and that pretty much was Hodgson all over. So... You know, although we wasn't um, excited by Hodgson's appointment, he clearly knew what he was doing. And the players that he brought in, if anything, gave us a spine to the team. So Sanchez was playing people like Tony Warner in goal and 
long balls up to David Healy up front because McBride was injured. People like Smirtin and Stephen Davis in the middle were pointless if, if he was just going to play the long ball. And we went from that to having the likes of Casey Keller come in, very experienced. Uh, McBride and Bullard come back, Bullard alongside Murphy. And of course, the icing on the cake for me was Hangeland and his partnership with Aaron Hughes, which just got off to a really good start. They was just, just such a natural pairing. Uh, I would imagine Hangeland also spoke English, which must have really helped the communication at the back and how they started so well. Like you say, without Hangeland, we wouldn't have stayed up because we would have just lost every game. We would have just conceded goals for fun, as we're experiencing so far this season. Well, you mentioned the Hangeland and Hughes partnership there, and it, and it did become a brilliant partnership in the heart of the Fulham defence for a few seasons. But I feel like Hangeland would have got the best out of many average Premier League central defenders. Do you think that's fair, or is that a bit harsh on Aaron Hughes' contribution to that partnership? Uh, I think that's very harsh. It, to an extent, I agree, because Hangeland was a bit like Bobby Zamora. Uh, we, we touched on this with Zamora a couple of weeks ago, that they were so good that they would have brought up anyone's level. And I do think Hangeland got the best out of Aaron Hughes, but then I don't think Hangeland at the same player without Hughes next to him. Aaron Hughes started his career at Newcastle when Newcastle under Bobby Robson were in the top four all the time and playing in the Champions League. I think he had more about him than just being average. Hangeland was the much better player of the two. But I think what made them so good was that they were a perfect partnership. I meant it more as a compliment to Hangeland more than um, a diss to Aaron Hughes because Aaron Hughes was great, obviously. And and if Aaron Hughes happened to hear me say that, he'd probably think, what an idiot. You know, what do these fans know? And I I don't really mean it like that. I just mean that Breda Hangeland was that good that I think if you put in, um, I don't know, I can't think of an example of another, another or an average Premier League defender but if you put somebody alongside him, I think that their game would have been raised playing alongside Breda Hangeland. I 100% agree with that. You, you look at our defence as it is now, as it has been this season and as it was in the Premier League last time, and you just appreciate how good players like Hangeland and Hughes were because we've been disastrous at the back. And it's and I guess we kind of probably took that for granted a little bit at the time that we had such good players at that time. Um, let's move on. In the August after the Great Escape, we recorded a fantastic 1-0 win over Arsenal at the Cottage as Breda Hangeland got his first goal for the club. It was a classic centre-half goal, wasn't it? Prodded in with his studs from close range. <laughs> yeah, no one was going to get to the ball before him, were they? He just absolutely um, bulldozed his way through and, and, and smashed it in with his studs. He didn't score many goals, did he, Hangeland? But uh, it came off the back of losing to a newly promoted Hull away. Uh, yeah. We, we just recovered from the great escape and we went up to Hull with all these new signings and I thought, yep, new start, fresh start. And we lost to them and I thought, oh, here we go again. And obviously, that what a way to respond. You know, it's, it's beating Arsenal at home. So, it was, uh, yeah, no, a nice way to score your first goal for the club. Yeah, and you said that he doesn't score that many goals, but Shakhtar Donetsk away. Talk me through your memories of that. Well, Shakhtar away. I mean, it was probably more nerve-wracking than the first leg, and I thought that was bad enough. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Shakhtar are the best team I've ever seen. The football they played was unbelievable. And again, I think that's a testament to people like Hangeland and the way Hodgson played, that we somehow could overcome that. And a team as good as Shakhtar Donetsk couldn't break us down. And Hangeland, of course, scoring that header away uh, in Ukraine was the difference between the two teams. So, yeah, probably, well, not probably, it was the most important goal he ever scored for Fulham. And the rest is history. I just remember going into that second leg in the Ukraine, thinking we're just going to be turning up and we're probably going to get smashed after... You know, we, we took a lead out there, didn't we, from um, from the first leg after that Zamora goal when, when we won 2-1. And we ended up drawing one all away. Um, didn't Danny Murphy get sent off in that game as well, the second leg, right at the end? Just quite a petulant kick out. Yeah, he did, yeah. And we beat Juventus over two legs without him because he got a two-game ban. Yeah. 
I just I remember getting on the internet as soon as we uh, as soon as we won because I didn't go to Shakhtar and just looking up flights to Turin, just booked my flights that night. And then it came to light that we weren't going to get that many tickets for the away game. Um, ended up driving up, took the morning off work, driving up and queuing up outside the ticket office to get a ticket to go to Turin for, for the first leg at Juventus. Um, and yeah, just fantastic times. You know, I don't think we'll ever see the like of that again. It was just an amazing times. Do you know what? That Juventus, uh, the away game, I was there as well. And... I didn't really do much research in the build-up to the game, and I was really looking forward to going to see this like fantastic Juventus stadium. And it turned out they were ground sharing with Torino. Yeah, it was ground pretty, smaller than ours. Tiny yeah, ground, isn't it? <laughs> it was rubbish, really. It was. I think that was the only underwhelming uh, thing about the the whole Juventus experience. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite a boozy. Uh, boozy trip for me and for a lot of other people. I think the problem was my my plane landed about nine o'clock in the morning in Turin. It's got a really early flight. And the game didn't kick off till nine o'clock at night, their time. And I didn't really have any interest in seeing the sights out there. So you did what you tend to do on away trips and just meet up with your mates and head straight to the pub. And my God, it was a long day. Really long day. Um, very very, very cultured is our map boss. <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean, I'm not particularly, not particularly proud of it, but it happened. And I mean, it was a great trip, don't get me wrong. But yeah, good times, good times. Um, I remember another great goal Breda Hangelin scored as we came back from the dead against Manchester United uh, to draw two all in August 2010. Last minute header from from the big man to equalise, I think past Edwin van der Sar. Um, he previously scored an own goal in that game to give United a 2-1 lead. And David Stockdale has saved a late penalty from Nani a few minutes earlier as well. What do you remember about that game? Do you remember that goal? Yeah, I remember the game, I remember the goal, but you've basically just described everything that happened. I was going to mention Stockdale is probably the highlight of his career, wasn't it? Saving that yeah. nanny penalty. And then, obviously, Hangulun made amends for the own goals. Yeah, Hangulun was such a lovely guy and such a likeable person that you didn't like to see him let the team down. And it's nice that he, he made amends for it. And we didn't get many points at home to Man United. We had a, yeah. a little spell where we did well against them. But overall, our return was probably quite poor. And that was another priceless point. I've got quite a funny story about that goal. Um, I took a bloke who I worked with to that game. He, he didn't sit next to me, but he sat in the row in front, a few seats along. I got him as close as he could. But he was a Manchester United fan. I know, tucked up, naughty, naughty. But he's one of those guys who just keep his mouth shut. So it, it was fine. Um, and when we equalised at the end, he's kind of stood up and, you know, tried to blend in and clapped, and the bloke next to him, a Fulham fan, no idea who it was, but grabbed him, was jumping all over him, made him give him a high five and everything. <laughs> Absolutely. This guy that I work with is hilarious. I always remember that. Um, what did you make when Brader Hangland became Fulham captain? What did you make of him as a captain? Uh, I love your breeder. But you was not a captain. Um, I always feel that you're going down the wrong road when you make the best player in the team the captain just because he's the best player in the team. I suppose on uh, seniority and I suppose importance to the team, he probably was at the very top because Danny Murphy had left. Uh, but it just didn't work out. I remember him getting sent off for, for a tackle uh, against Sunderland. Uh, at the cottage, and he got a straight red. And then there were stories after the game that he went and apologised to the referee. And I know we're Fulham, and we love the fact that everyone loves us, and we're such a friendly family club, and do everything the right way. You know, you don't want your captain apologising for a tackle that he was entitled to go for. Um, it's not like he was like abusive to the referee or something. It was just, it was just a foul. I think that was the only thing you could maybe criticise him for. And, and in a way, it's, it's a nice thing to criticise him over. He was too nice to be a captain. Uh, and I think that's all it comes down to. Just wasn't an attribute that suited his game. Uh, but it hasn't made me feel any less about him as a player. For me, he's the greatest defender in Fulham's history. And I don't think you can get a bigger compliment than that. Fair enough, mate. Fair enough. Have you got any other stories about him that you want to share? Well, I've got one personal one uh, that uh, I know means a lot to my mum. 
my granddad obviously started off our Fulham family tradition and towards the end of his his life, his his last few years, he was housebound. And because he wasn't on social media and, and things like that, I, I really was his only um I sort of, I suppose I was his eyes and ears for Fulham. Uh, it, and he kind of felt a bit disconnected from it in a way. And I remember my mum and dad going to an evening at the cottage where I think Hanglin and Hughes were like special guests just meeting and greeting the fans. And my mum mentioned uh, uh, about my granddad and Reda said, get him on the phone. I'll have a chat with him. So my mum did. She rung him and they were talking for a good five minutes about what they needed to improve on and, you know, and, and the situation is just made my granddad feel like important and he didn't have to do that. And I don't think many players would have, but just shows you how much he uh, got what Fulham was about. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting a bit emotional now thinking about it because it, it just meant so much. And um, for me, of all the players that have, I've ever seen play for Fulham, I think, I don't know if this is a thing for small clubs or whether it's just a big club thing, but I can't think of a player more suited to be an ambassador for Fulham around the world. Uh, I just think he was just the, the perfect Fulham player. And yeah, uh, I, he just he just means more to me than just a player. He's just, he's, he's a very special person. And, you know, I have, I have the utmost respect for him. That's a brilliant story. I don't think you've ever told me that before. I, I love that. Can't believe that a Premier League footballer would say, "Yeah, just get him on the phone. I'll have a chat with him. How nice! What a top man!" And you talk about respect. Um, his final season at Fulham resulted in relegation from the Premier League after, you know, which was a dreadful season. Um, although he was not particularly responsible. New ownership, three managers, the last of which is probably the biggest disaster of a manager that the club has ever had, peaking when he told Breda to go and rust some cheese on an injury and call his mum to make it go away. What an utter idiot. Breda was then rewarded for some very special years at the club. And like I said, you talk about respect, that call to your granddad. He was released by email. Could a club legend be treated with any less respect than that? Well, I mean, what a disgrace. I can't think of anything more untypical Fulham. It's just not the way we do things. And we've spoken in the past about people like Moritz Boltz just disappearing through the back door and, and people forgetting they was even at the club. But for someone like Breda Hangeland, who is, for me, the greatest player of our greatest era, to be released by an email is, is a disgrace. And whoever did it should be ashamed of themselves. Yeah, completely agree. Um, after we signed for Crystal Palace, this weekend's opponents, he came back and sat at the Hammersmith end a few times to watch us as a fan, proving that he was Fulham forever. And it just goes to show that, you know, that he didn't bear any grudges towards the fans for, for what happened when um, when he was released by email. And uh, and I think he'll always be one of us. And like you said, he's um, he's one of one of our greatest players of all time. And yeah, pro- probably is our greatest defender of all time. But for you, where does he sit on the list of club legends as a whole? I'm pretty sure he made more Premier League appearances for us than any other player. And if you take out Simon Morgan, nobody since then has made more appearances for the club than Hangeland. So that shows you in, in the modern era, he was a very loyal player. And to be a player of that calibre, we're not talking about someone who was just Fulham's level and just plodded along with Fulham for years and years. He could have easily gone somewhere else. And I don't know how close moves were to, to bigger clubs or if there was any interest, but he never kicked up a fuss about moving, did he? He was very happy to be mm. at Fulham. And I think that added to what makes him such a great player is that Fulham meant as much to him as he does to us, which isn't always the case with players that we adore. I think he's got to be the greatest defender of all time uh, in the club's history. I know people will say people like Bobby Moore were, were better players in their own right, but in a Fulham shirt, Hangen was playing at the top level. He played in the greatest era. And if you look at where Fulham were when he signed to where Fulham were a few months later, 
he was a big reason why we had the greatest era of our history. It wasn't just like circumstantial where he found himself in a good team. He made us a good team. Uh, in terms of all round, who was our greatest player? I mean, you've got an elite group like Johnny Haynes, George Cohen, uh, Graham Leggett, Bedford Jezzard, Adam Mullery, Gordon Davis. I would say those six are probably the elite and it's going to be very hard for someone to ever break into that. But after that, I think seventh place is up for grabs. I think there's a lot of players that have done well for Fulham over the years. And when you think about the level Hangelin was playing at and the era we had, I don't see a reason why he couldn't be seventh. So for me, he would be in the top 10, which speaks volumes of, of how much I think of him as a player. Superb, mate. Well, rate his career out of 10 at Fulham then. One. <laughs> no, if I could give him more than a 10, I would. Uh, 10 out of 10. Other than not being the greatest captain in the world, it was faultless for me. Uh, yeah. I don't blame him for our demise. I actually think the fact that he had injury problems and that he wasn't the same player towards the end is probably one of the reasons why we ended up going down because he was irreplaceable. And without a spine that included the likes of Hanglin, Hughes, Murphy, Zamora and Swartzer, we just went soft again. He was irreplaceable. What can you say? 10 out of 10. Yeah, I, I echo that exactly. I, I couldn't give him anything but a 10 as well. You look at, as I said, how we defend these days and it's just completely different to, to how we used to defend and how we used to be when we had a player of his quality at our disposal. So... You know, those, those sort of players come along once or twice in a lifetime. And, you know, those of us who, who saw him play were very lucky to have, have done so. And I feel privileged to have, to have watched him. So, yeah, 10 out of 10 for me as well. Brilliant stuff. All right, mate. I enjoyed that one. Thanks for that. Fulham. Right. So let's come on to some stats then. As per usual, Stato Matata has prepared a lovely Fulham focused fact file on the Visitor's Crystal Palace. Morgs, what have you got for us? I have got to start with our record against Palace. So we have played 45 games. We have won 17, we've drawn 15, and we've only lost 13. Obviously, this was the first fixture of our 2018-19 campaign. Uh, everyone full of optimism, uh, flags waving, ground full, and uh, Uncle Roy gave us a good beating. And uh, it was a solid 2-0 uh, loss to Palace. Uh, it was also the full league debuts for Fabry, uh, Maxime Le Marchand, Callum Chambers, Joe Bryan, Jean-Michel Serri and Andre Schoeller that day. Uh, memorable. Th- that 11 that Palace played were all there the season before and uh, they say that uh, consistency is important. So maybe that's why we lost. Uh, the last time we won at home to Palace uh, was back in January 2005. Uh, we won 3-1 in goals from Andrew Cole, who got two, and Thomas Rudzinski. Uh, Andrew Johnson scored the goal for Palace that day, and Garble Karali was in goal for Palace during the game as well, which explains why we scored at least three. Overall, our last five games against Palace have been pretty balanced. Uh, we've lost two, won two, and we've got a draw. Uh, the, uh, the other win was our uh, wonderful 4-1 win away when... Uh, Kasami scored that amazing goal and Philip Senderos scored a bicycle kick, which was one for the uh, <laughs> collector's edition. Best goal ever, uh, that, Kasami, that Kasami goal. Best Fulham goal ever. Probably, isn't oh, it? Yeah. You got, you Apart from say, Mickey Conroy from the halfway line against Wickham. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's got to be up there. I mean, obviously, Senderos' one was pushing it. Uh, and but Steve Sipwell uh, scored a belter that day as well. Yeah, Sipwell scored one from the Yeah, there were, there were three belters in that one. And yeah, uh, yeah um, yeah, that Kasami goal was just something special. I mean, <laughs> you could try and do that all the time. He probably wouldn't score it again. But yeah, that was uh, definitely uh, up there in the, the top two. Let's call it that. Uh, one of uh, Fulham or Palace have been in the Premier League for 24 out of the previous 28 Premier League seasons, but have only faced each other in the Premiership uh, in three of those seasons. Uh, when we're in it, they're not, and vice versa. Uh, we've had 23 home games against Palace, only lost four of them uh, before the loss in 2018. Our last home loss to Palace came back in March 1986 in the old Division 2, when uh, Ben wasn't even thought of. I could, I could have used a, a really unpleasant analogy, but I won't. 
Probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've had a couple of drinks. It could go anywhere. Um, <laughs> uh, right. So, looking at the Crystal Palace story uh, from uh, last season, this season, um, in 2018-19, it was a classic Roy Hodgson season that saw them uh, finish at a steady 12th, and it looked as if the trend was going to continue into 2019-20. Much of the summer surrounded the charismatic striker Wilfred Zahar. Uh, in the end, he stayed put, despite lots of transfer speculation to the contrary. But they certainly affected his season. He only scored four goals throughout it. Obviously, with finances being tight at Palace, they could only sign Jordan Ayew for £2.5 million, James McCarthy for a small undisclosed fee, and Gary Cahill came in as uh, an experienced free agent. Uh, nonetheless, in a typical Hodgson fashion, they managed to get you know, a modest start. They only lost three of their uh, opening 10 games. They amassed 15 points during that time. And uh, whilst survival was the main objective, and they were right on course to this through the halfway st- stage, they had 26 points after 19 games and were looking set for another season in the Premier League. And, you know, as they moved forward by game week 30, they'd moved up to ninth place of 42 points. And obviously, with, by this point, survival is basically virtually guaranteed. But as you see with a lot of teams of that stature, if they know they've got over 40 points, sometimes they get a bit comfortable. It looks as if they got on their holidays because after that, they went to lose seven of their eight uh, final games. Obviously, lockdown affected a lot of teams like that. Uh, They only drew on the final day to stop the rot and eventually finished in 14th place. Uh, Fans and pundits were expecting Palace to continue this rot start this season, but they bounced back by winning their first two games of the season, including a very impressive 3-1 win at... Old Trafford against Man U. Uh, however, they have not won since then, uh, losing two, and they drew against Brighton on Sunday, uh, which is a game I watched, and I have to say it was turgid at best. It was looked at it, and the thing that stood out from that game is that once they score, they will sit back, and it is very difficult to break them down. And I think we need to get the first goal in that game in order to make sure that we don't have to suddenly play up against a, a wall of Hodgson-esque defending. So I've got the Crystal Palace stats at a glance for 1920. They had 11 wins last season. Six of those came at home and five in away games. And the home and away form were fairly similar. They had five draws home, five draws away, um, eight losses at home and uh, nine losses away. So fairly consistent whether at home or away. But the big difference comes in the goals conceded. In the home games, they only conceded an average 1.05 goals a game, but in away games, this went up to 1.58. And their goal scored is horrendously low, with only 0.84 goals scored per away game, which is better than the home record of only 0.79 goals per game, which is pretty impressive, the fact they stayed up, scoring less goals than they conceded. They only won by more than one goal margin on three occasions, and they didn't manage to score more than two goals or win by more than two goals at all last season. 60% 60% of the goals they conceded in the away games came in the second half, the majority of them coming in the last 15 minutes. New signs for Crystal Palace. You've got Eberecki Easy, who you will remember from QPR. We played him a few times in the Championship. He's a former Fulham youth player, actually. Yeah. He joined from QPR in the summer for 16 million. Last season in the Championship, we got 14 goals and 8 assists. It's um, not a bad return. And he's only started two games so far this season. He's yet to score assists in the Premier League. Only say Ben Rama and Ovi Ajaria registered more successful dribbles than him in the last season in the Championship. Signed Nathan Ferguson, fullback signed on the free agent after his contract expired at West Brom. He made 21 appearances at West Brom last season, scoring one and assisting one, but he's yet to make appearances this season. So, another player that uh, Palace have signed this season is Michi Bashwai. He joined on loan from Chelsea for a second spell at Crystal Palace. Uh, his first spell coming in 19, sorry, 18 19. Um, he was only used as a sub last year at Chelsea and he started one game in the league all season. He's been on loan several times like most Chelsea players and he's been successful most times he's been away. He went to Dortmund in 17-18 and scored seven goals in 10 games and he was at Palace the second half of the 18-19 season and scored five in 11 games. But he's yet to score this season for Palace. They've also signed Jack Butland and Nathaniel Klein. They signed Butland from Stoke for just 500k but they expected to be using him as just cover this season. And they're saying Klein from Liverpool was a free agent after he was released. Lovely stuff, mate. Thanks for that. Well, we've already spoken a bit about some of their key players, or one in particular, Wilfred Zahar, 
who scored 40 goals since he rejoined Crystal Palace back in 2014. And we've already said he's got four goals this season in just five games. He had a quiet season last year, however, scoring just four and assisting three. And the transfer speculation at the start of the season where he almost moved to Everton really probably affected his form. His goals mainly come from inside the penalty box and more often than not come as a result of successful dribbles that he makes. Um, He'll probably be playing in that central striker role, um, but he'll probably also drift out wide if um, if one of Benteke uh, or Batshuayi starts. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the, the Crystal Palace defence now, in particular, Mamadou Sacco. Plenty of their experienced centre-backs we could have spoken about here. We've got Gary, Gary Cahill, Scott Dan, Martin Kelly, but Sacco has been picked due to the fact that he's the only one who started all of Crystal Palace's four games this season. So he'll be the main man if we're going to break Crystal Palace down. Um, It's a robust Roy Hodgson defence, but one that's also showing signs of ageing as the average age of Palace's defence at the moment is 29. That average figure is only brought down by the average age of young fullbacks, Ferguson and Tyrant Mitchell, who's come up through the Crystal Palace youth team. They've conceded eight goals so far, with three of those being penalties and four coming from open play. Seen impressive performances so far from their goalkeeper, Vicente Guaita, who is currently in fifth place on total saves made by Premier League keepers this season. Although, as Ben said, they've now signed Jack Butland, who will be providing stiff competition. So we'll wait and see as to whether or not he breaks into the team or not. I think you probably won't see Butland for a while. I think he um, he was brought in very much as cover because I think if you look at here how he performed at Stoke over the last couple of seasons, I think they were just trying to get him off his off their books because they had he'd even dropped to the bench there. So I think Gaeta he's uh, he's been pretty solid for them, and I don't think he'll be getting displaced anytime soon. And I think like any uh, Hodgson team, uh, the two centre backs and the goalkeeper. Uh, three of the most important players that you'll see. So I don't think he's going to be changing up too much there. How the mighty have fallen. I remember when he was one of the hottest young prospects, but yeah. we've got quite a lot of goalkeepers in this country at the moment who are obviously way ahead of him in, you know, in, in line for the uh, number one spot in, in the England team. But he has been given the number one shirt at Crystal Palace. It was probably just free, to be honest, wasn't it? Yeah. It, was either, it was either that or 54, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, lads. Well, as I said earlier in the show, we know that Jordan Ayew was Crystal Palace's top scorer last season with nine goals, but he's self-isolated after testing positive for coronavirus, so won't be available for selection. But, Morgs, how do you see Fulham lining up? We've got to attack him from the start, surely. You've already said that we've got to get the first goal here. Uh, I don't think we'll see much change from last week. I think uh, at times, obviously, there was frustration how we played in the first half. But we did play some decent stuff. And I think uh, the only change that I could safely say would be Cavalero coming off. Um, I don't know who for, but of all the players that played, I think um, he's the only one that I would actually replace. I think, you know, as um, the article that uh, Luke released uh, yesterday about uh, Kearney's new position, I think we're going to see a lot more of him there. And obviously, without um, Steph Joe, Steph Joe came back as options, I think um, him with Angisa and uh, Loftus Cheek playing in that three, midfield three, I think that's going to be um, I think that's going to be a, a bit of a mainstay if uh, they can all keep fit and you know continue their form. Because I but think what about Lamina though? Lamina looked good when he came on at the weekend, although only for the last kind of ten minutes or so. I don't, I don't think he's ready to start yet. I don't I don't know what the um, uh, what if he had a bit of an injury, didn't he? Um, but I think those. I think Angisa obviously has to start because we've just seen how different class he is to that guy that signed from Marseille, you know, back in 2018-19. And you've got to look at Kearney, who's you know we've talked about this endless times. He's not the best captain out there, but he does provide uh, a certain experience of playing for Fulham that you know a lot of the players don't have. And so I think uh, doing that job in, uh, you know, deep in midfield, I think, you know, hopefully it can work for him. So those two, and then we bring Lamina on at some point during the game. If Fair enough. What about you, Ben? How do you see it going? 
Uh, I can see exactly the same team. Like Morgan said, um, maybe Cavalero out, but then who would you bring in? Uh, we haven't exactly got a... Well, that's the thing. Exactly who, 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 who is it? FK I mean, it's... Oh, God. Oh, just leave it blank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which one's the lesser of two evils, I suppose? Uh, Kamara who misses okay. easy chances or Cavalero can't create them. I guess you've also got Bobby Reed there as well, potentially. Yeah, you don't want to say that name too much in our group <laughs> chat. Uh, no, I know, I know, I know. Okay, so so you so if it was you then, if it was you picking the team, would you play Cavalero on the right or what would you do? I, I would, but only because he's got a bit of prem experience um, and we haven't got another option. I think that's the only place now in our squad you can look at and say maybe we haven't got enough um, sort of prem experience there or a good enough player there is probably right back now. Uh, well, so right wing, not right, right back. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the moment, we go from game to game, don't we? And we think, oh, well, that looked all right. And at Wolves, we thought, well, that kind of Brian and Robinson kind of combination on the left looked good. But then Lutman comes in and starts from the beginning against Sheffield United and looks fantastic. Oh, I, I think Scott Parker has a different tactical solution in his head for each game. I don't think it's a case of I'm going to turn up and I'm going to pick this team for every game and this is my team. It's not like um, it's not like the Kevin Keegan days or it's not like the Roy Hodgson days or whatever where we turn up with a team and we invite teams to, to play against us. We've got a, a tactical plan for each game. Um, and I just wonder whether the tactical game for Sheffield United away would be the same for Crystal Palace at home. You've got, to, you've got to think it's going to be fairly similar. I mean, they're not massively different teams, I guess. I guess Sheffield United are known for the playing a slightly strange style, but they're hard to break down. And I think that's what we're going to get with Palace as well. The, I'm just thinking about that. I mean, I think someone mentioned it in our uh, WhatsApp group, but bringing putting Lookman on the right and then having Brian on the left. I, don't, I, I would potentially go for that just because I don't think we have a good enough option to replace um, Cavalero on the right. Yeah, but arguably, Lookman has been one of our best players in the last few games, whether he's come off the bench or whether he started the game. So do you then say, well, he looks all right, we're playing somewhere else, or do you say, well, he looks excellent there, we leave him there, and then we find another solution for the other side? Yeah, but is is his style particularly good because of where he's playing or is he just a very good player and I think he's not putting have, we, have, we, have we got time have we got time to find that out <laughs> no that's the thing no. you know but we could we but might we've be got, we've, got, we've, got a, we've got a, we've got a half a football and I think yeah. you know if he comes in the first half and he's playing on the right and he's cutting in a lot you know kind of almost like a, a good knockout and you'd hope and if it's not working out, then you don't sacrifice him. You sacrifice Joe Bryan, who's playing on the left, and then we bring on uh, a Cavalero, uh, Decadova Reed, or maybe an AK. You just hope by that point it's not too late, though. We just uh, there's no real time to experiment anymore, is there? We've, you know, it's shit or bust, really, for Scott. Well, we can't. The thing is, though, we can't panic now, and you know, much like a plane that loses its engines at. 40,000 feet we do have time to correct things you know we it's not we're not going to lose and that's the and lose and go down if we need to make a you know have a couple of games where we are still trying out things because we do have these few new players then so be it it's you know it's really much about patience as anything and obviously football fans aren't blessed with a huge amount of that uh but i do think that you know scott does look like he's getting a few of you know the right elements in there but there are still certain things that need to be experimented with in order to make sure that we do find our best 11 which i don't think he's found yet well while slav was trying to find his best 11 we managed a 4-2 victory over burnley in our third game of the season which is far more than we've managed so far this year yet we kind of look at this and think we've probably started a bit better there's more to be um more to be Excited about this season, let's say. Palace had five wins, five draws and nine defeats on their travels last season. Ben, how do you see this one going? What's your score prediction? Um, 
I think I think we're going to get that that goal first uh, that Morgan said we needed, and I think we're going to come out two one winners. Uh, we need that first goal, otherwise they're just going to shut up shop and we probably won't be able to break them down. I still fancy us to break them down, though. I know I know, Roy's excellent uh, at shutting up shop and being being defensive, but we now do have players. We've got Loftus-Cheek, who was on loan at Palace a couple of years ago, um, and we've got Lookman, who's looked great in uh, the games that we've seen him in so far this year. Um, and and I feel like it's it's not a foregone conclusion anymore that if we do go behind uh, that we won't get back in the game. I feel like we could get back in the game with those players. Um, and I, I also feel like Mitrovic is is going to have a point to prove this um, this weekend. So I'm going to go for three uh, one Fulham. I'm going to stick my neck out, and I th- I think I think Mitro will get two. I think Mitro is definitely going to get two goals this weekend. I just feel it in my bones, but. As I always say, it always comes with the caveat that I'm very rarely right. <laughs> Morgs, what about you, mate? Well, as I've been told for many years, I'm never right. Uh, so let's, uh, <laughs> I'll go with the Palace win. Uh, just, no, I um, <laughs> I think I, I've got, you know, I, I want to believe this feeling that I have isn't just um, naive optimism, but I have this feeling we will get our first win this weekend. We need to get it at some point, he says. But I think we'll get it. I think we'll get one in the first half, and I think we'll get one near the end, and I think we'll win 2 0. That'll do me. Lovely stuff, lads. All right. Well, thanks you both for joining me, and thanks to everybody for listening at home. J Mac will hopefully be back this weekend if he, uh, if he doesn't have that hangover sprain again. Um, he'll be back on Monday morning with the reaction to the game, and then. We will have another show this time next week, which will be the preview of the West Brom game. So enjoy your weekend, guys. Get behind the lads, pay your money and watch the game on TV. And I will speak to you soon. Cheers. Cheers.